Coming up next on Chapters, we'll have a conversation with sports journalist Chris Young. Chris has been in the Boston market writing about sports for over 30 years. We'll hear about Chris's career and have a conversation about New England sports, including our beloved Red Sox. All that more coming up next on Chapters. My name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. I'm joined in studio today by my guest, Chris Young. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for fighting your way through the rain here in Franklin. We're recording today on a, on a very rainy, tropical storm type of day, and Chris was nice enough to come all the way down to our studios. Uh, I've known Chris for some time through our mutual connection at Trinity Episcopal Church in Rentham. One of the things that draws me to Chris is our mutual love of sports, and Chris has been a sports journalist since the mid-'80s. He's also had a fascinating career, which has included uh, him being the editor for the yearbooks for all major sports teams in New England, right? That's correct. For, for almost two decades. Uh, since the mid-80s, mid uh, when I joined the Boston Phoenix in 1984, I almost immediately was, was put into the position of being involved in the Boston Marathon publications, and soon we took on the uh, official yearbooks of the Bruins and the Celtics, and then briefly in the early 90s, uh, the New England Patriots. I know you from knowing you well enough that you eat, breathe, and sleep New England sports and sports in general. Well, I grew up in upstate New York, so I think I felt like I was doomed to a life of uh, working at the Utica newspapers, and that would mean covering the not even single A Utica Blue Sox and uh, minor league hockey, high school and college sports, and maybe, if I got really lucky, might get to cover Syracuse football or basketball yeah, on a lucky day that would have been the the pinnacle probably if i had stayed in upstate new york i spent a lot of time in upstate new york having gone to hobart college and i believe i went to a blue Sox game and i'm trying to remember their affiliate they didn't have one they didn't have one okay that's so why those I can't guys were going nowhere yeah but it was a fun game to watch sure did you catch the bug right there for, for journalism? I think I had the bug uh, even growing up. The first thing I did every morning was with my Cheerios, I would open the sports page and, and scan the box scores. And I just, just loved reading. Chris, I wanted to bring people forward from your Utica position. You wound up at the Boston Phoenix after a little time and were, were there for many years in the sports department. Well, technically, they didn't have a sports department. It was an arts and entertainment weekly primarily, but I came in at the right time when they were trying to uh, look at other avenues. I had moved to Boston in 1984, uh, just having had enough of... There's nothing wrong with growing up in upstate New York, but yep. I, I just... I had friends in the Boston area. I had become infatuated with Fenway Park and the city of Boston, so I just kind of up and left one day and in late August of 1984 and fortunately got this position as just a kind of a typist or a type typesetter was what it was called. At that time, the Phoenix had the contract to publish the Boston Marathon program each year. And I worked on it for a few years just from a production standpoint. But in 1986, they, they reached out to the Boston Bruins who had not done a uh, a yearbook since the early 70s when Bobby Orr was playing. And they, they made a deal with the Bruins saying, uh, we'll publish this, and uh, as long as we can sell the advertising, you provide us with a lot of the content, and we'll, we'll have a souvenir book that will be sold at the Garden. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, we had also had the Celtics book, and it was done in kind of the same manner. So all of a sudden... Um, 
the Boston Phoenix Arts and Entertainment Weekly newspaper, also had the side business of contract publishing. Mm-hmm. And they needed somebody who kind of knew sports. And for the most part, that wasn't uh, a job qualification that they were looking for when they hired people to work at the Phoenix. Yeah, but it, I, yeah. Phoenix wasn't known for its sports, as you said before. It didn't have an apartment. Uh, on occasion, they would run a uh, sports story within the news section. But yeah. for the most part, it was just... Uh, club listings and arts reviews Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And uh, so apparently I seem like a logical person to to take over the editorship of of those publications. And uh, now the Bruins, they they hadn't really been a cup contender since Orr had left in the mid-70s. So when they they decided to do a yearbook again, they they said, well, um, why don't we, we'll have the player profiles, which is the main substance of any yearbook, but we'll also have a feature story. And um, why don't you write? And I said, me? I hadn't really written anything since since college. And, right. And all of a sudden they were saying, well, why don't you write about, this year we'll do the history of the Bruins, but next year and years to come, each year you'll interview a player. Mm. And all of a sudden this became daunting because I had never really met anyone famous. Sure. And, much less sat down and interviewed anyone famous. Yeah. So it, uh, it was... Uh, much less little, really written uh, substantially right, in your adult right. life. Yeah. In 19... Uh, I believe it was 1990. It was the anniversary, 20th anniversary of the uh, Bobby Orr's Cup winning team in sure. 1970. And so I, they gave me a list of phone numbers of old Bruins to call, and I was nervous as heck calling every one of them, especially the one listed under the O's. Yeah. I mean, it just took me a couple of days to be able to work up the nerve to, to dial his office. I'll bet. Can I, is, may I speak with Bobby Orr, please? And maybe, for better or for worse, Bobby was off on a hunting or fishing trip. Uh-huh. He wasn't available. So, so he had a momentary reprieve. Right. So... <laughs> So I got to interview some of the lesser stars, where the Pie McKenzies and the Gary Dokes. Hey, and, and my the, hero is Pie McKenzie. Right. I love Pie McKenzie. Yes. <laughs> May he rest in peace. Yes. And uh, so that was a lot easier, but it was all done um, over the phone. But in the coming years, they decided to, to do regular players. So they just would set it up. I would drive up to Wilmington and go to their practice facility sure. up there. Yeah, yeah. And then I would take out to lunch the featured player that day. And... Uh, what a great gig. Uh, and I got, I mean, it, it was wonderful. And uh, some of the stuff, some of the people I got to interview over the years, uh, Ray Bork, Jason Allison, Brian Ralston, Glenn Murray, a 19-year-old Joe Thornton, who wow. couldn't have been more delightful. Yeah. Bill Guerin, Mark Savard. And in later years, uh, Zdeno Chara. Wow. Uh, Patrice Bergeron. And then... Uh, the final one I did uh, was Willie O'Ree, the the uh, first black player to play sure. in the NHL, yeah. uh, who was who's just been selected to the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the years, it just became easier and easier to sit down with these guys. And and hockey players, as a rule, are just very down to earth and easygoing, and they were really easy to talk to. And yeah. my angle was always, 
I know what you do on the ice. I can see your stats, but we'd like to know more about what you're like off the ice. And I just, I like to find out more about them as people. So you were collecting stories about right. them right. And, and giving them a voice that, that maybe they hadn't had an opportunity to express in right. many interviews. You know, how's your transition game? Well, I can talk about that, but... Exactly. You know, I'd like to tell you more about being a dad. I mean, I would yeah. bring in a, a guy, sometimes a, a good friend of mine, who really knew hockey much better than I did mm -hmm. and, and could ask some questions along those lines. But for the most part, I I wanted to ask the questions that they weren't really getting asked sure. uh, by the, the daily reporters, those kind of things. For many, many... How long were you with the Phoenix? I was there for 22 years. Wow. And... I left in 2006. When they the, shut the lights out, right? Well, they, they stayed going for oh, another did. seven years. Okay. But for for a smaller publication, when someone's been there that long, mm -hmm. they've reached a pay scale where they kind of say, is it re he really worth it? Uh, and they still wanted me to oversee the, the yearbooks. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I did that on a freelance basis. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was great for me, even when I was un employed for a while. But I, I certainly enjoyed continuing the, the relationships and establish. I established great relationships, not only with the Bruins and the Celtics, and I always regret that we didn't get the Red Sox booked. Um, but we did have the Patriots for three years, and I, I got to uh, work with Stacey James, who is still there, sure. the communications guy down mm -hmm. there. And uh, those were two out of the three were Parcells years. So it was, it was kind of during the resurgence when Bledsoe had been drafted. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, the Patriots at some point realized, you know, we can probably make our own money on this, bringing it back in-house. And they've yeah. done that ever since. Yeah. But we had it for three years. But mm. I was still doing the Bruins and the Celtics well into uh, 2011, mm. 2012. Mm. So it was uh, a great for, for someone working at an arts and entertainment weekly, it was a great side. Oh, really, really fantastic and unique opportunity. I want to remind everybody, we're speaking with sports journalist, uh, editor, sports editor, uh, does the, has done the marathon book for how many years, 25 years now? Next year will be my 25th year overseeing the, the marathon publication. As I mentioned, I was involved in the production aspect for a number of years. But when, they, when we had all four of those major yearbooks, they... They set aside a, a specific job for me called uh, Director of Special Publications uh, for the Phoenix Media Group. And therefore, along with some of my print duties for the newspaper, I was primarily overseeing uh, these, these books. And the Marathon book is done totally different because I, I, I'm involved in assigning all the stories. The BAA, who oversees the race, they will, they will give a list of stories. I'll assign the stories. I'll edit all the stories, help choose the photos, and work with the designers. And uh, again, I got to write stories on occasion, which for, you know, this uh, hick town kid from upstate New York, all of a sudden I'm working with the uh, organizers of the biggest road race in the, in the country, in the world for that matter. I just want to take a minute to remind everybody we are speaking with sports journalist Chris Young. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find me at my podcast, www.chaptersradio.com. Chris, what I, the marathon's always been our signature event here in Boston, more so than I think any other event that I can think of in Boston. And I could be wrong, but as, as a sports guy, that's kind of where my mind goes on a one-day signature signature type of event. What was the impact 
of the bombing from your lens as a as a journalist, as somebody that's worked on this event for at the time close to 20 years? Um, what was the impact through your eyes? Well, I was real. I was there. I was heading over to the finish line. I was a block away when the bombs went off. And it's a sound that I will never, ever forget. And it had a profound effect on me that stays with me even to this day, five years later. But uh, to me, I was I was personally offended in some ways because it was it. I almost felt as if over the course of 20 plus years doing the book that I was almost a uh, a part-time employee of the BAA, and I helped, I, in my own small way, I felt, uh, was involved in the planning of the race in putting together this this program You, t- you took the words out of my mouth, and if anybody hasn't seen these marathon editions, uh, you really ought to do it. Uh, take the time to find one and take a look through it and look at future. Uh, these are not <laughs> these are not haphazardly put together. They're, they're really works of art. Um, so I was thinking that how intimately involved you've been with this planning over the years. And um, anyway, yeah. please continue. Well, I was I was very, very hurt. And, you know, I, I felt as if I was part of that family and something had been done to a member of the family. I held the race in such close uh, esteem and I really cared for everyone who organized it, the people who ran it. All the volunteers, there were so many people affected by what happened, that terrorist event. And it was really more than just a, uh, a bombing on a street in Boston. It really was, it was really an affront to the city of Boston, uh, a great tradition of all New Englanders, of road racing. I mean, certainly this event would not seem to be a target for this kind of sensationalism. And yet, for that very reason, it was so unexpected. And obviously, they've changed the security procedures ever since. But in, at the time, it just seemed like this can't really be happening in this place at this time. But uh, I never was close enough to view the carnage or to be in any danger myself. But it truly affected me for days and weeks afterwards. I can only imagine. And then working on the subsequent issue the following year must have been what an experience that must have been well it wasn't wasn't even a year later because they most people aren't aware but uh, they produce a results book that's given out just to the athletes who participated and that comes out in the summer so we get to work on it in late late may when in that year everything was still very fresh in people's minds and i was i was concerned that the baa might just kind of sweeping under the rug and say, look, we, we run a road race here, and it's not our fault that a terrorist attack happened. That's that's really not the story of the day. But in fact, they didn't do that, and I really admired them for taking facing it head-on and allowing stories to be written about what happened, photos to be included, and they didn't shy away from what happened that day, and even more so a year later for the 214 book. They let me to. They let me write a uh, very, very lengthy, probably too long, uh, retrospective. And I interviewed a lot of people affected by the race, uh, Boston celebrities, people who covered the race. Where were you? How did it affect you? And um, people who you wouldn't even think really had a vested interest. People like, you know, Doc Rivers, uh, the coach of the or even Mike Arruzzioni, just 
Boston legends who you knew in their own way were probably affected no less than any of the participants or people like me who uh, really had an affinity for the race and an association for the race. Uh, I talked to a number of newscasters from around the city, certainly athletes like Bill Rogers and Joni Samuelson, and uh, it it was a cathartic thing to kind of put together. I can't really say I wrote it because I really just compiled it. Mm. Um, but the fact that the BAA allowed that kind of uh, retrospective to be included a year later uh, showed that they they knew that it was part of their history and they weren't going to, to shy away from it nor nor hope it was just uh, a one one bad year and let's get back down to business as if it had never happened. Well, what a fascinating window you just provided into the fact that there really was a decision to be made there. There had to be a decision. Sure. Do, do we embrace this as part of the event or do we say separate from uh, we will cover our race results. We will cover the race itself, and we'll let the the rest of the media cover the the carnage. And you know, I'd never considered that. I I, w- I would never even guess that there would have been a choice to be made. Um, but that's a really really interesting detail. And as far as celebrities go, I mean, of course, the the most prominent reaction that I saw, being a lifelong Red Sox fan, was David Ortiz's reaction, which really to me was you know with his use of profanity, which was allowed to be broadcast across the year, was really a well placed word uh, for the sentiment. But it really uh, echoed what what you described, which is that sense that there was a personal affront to uh, his city, his meaning with air quotes, to our city, to our event, to our safety, to our families, to innocence of, of young children and people that go out and strap on shoes and, and run year round just to get a chance to run in this race that we're all stopped from running either by terrible graph, horrible injury or by virtue of the fact that the event was disrupted and then the ongoing security concerns. So he really provided a visceral uh, sort of outlet for people to get behind. Um, I would love to. Is there a place that we can find the article that you wrote, Chris, or a way to search for it online? It's nowhere accessible right now, Jim, but okay. I, I could post it on my Facebook page, uh, Christopher Young. I also have a link to all the, the columns that I write for the Sun Chronicle. Right. In, uh, in Attleboro, which... Uh, Great segue. My- Thanks for that. So I was just about to, to launch uh, people forward into your current position, which is a sports columnist for the Sun Chronicle here in Attleboro. And I see, I catch every one of Chris's articles. Um, I urge you to do the same. You can find them on Facebook. Obviously, you can go to the Sun Chronicle and look up the archives. Um, so when did you take... Well, I had been working part-time on their news and sports desk uh, Late last year, the paper decided to to save money that they were going to eliminate the Sunday paper. We figured if we we'll, we'll save money by eliminating the Sunday paper, but we'll make the Saturday paper that much bigger, mm-hmm. uh, almost doubling it in size, and it pretty much has. Uh, but they needed extra content. All of a sudden, a four or five page sports section was seven or eight, and uh, I had been writing. I had written an online column for the Phoenix right. for about. Uh, uh, I guess five or six years, and it's a little different writing online than in the newspaper because you have uh, you have definitive parameters in which you can write for a newspaper, uh, where where online you can write as long as you want, sure. and, and who cares? Uh, I had had uh, a background in writing sports columns, and I volunteered to write, and I've been writing every week uh, since January first, so about eight months now, and it's and. Uh, during the, the spring, 
during the winter and spring, you have the options of the Bruins and the Celtics and the, the Patriots. Uh, but once the summer comes along, you're pretty much uh, settled in with the Red Sox. Sure. And, and I certainly have a background with them uh, being, like yourself, a, a, a regular attendee there. And right. I, I have a small season ticket plan that allows me to go at least 10 games a year. So, And I've been to hundreds and hundreds of games since I moved. Is baseball your favorite sport? You know, to, Jim, to, I would say it, it used to be, and for the longest time, and probably until the last few years, I, I think I just enjoy the the predictability of, of hockey and, and, and football these days. Football, you know, you're going to sit in for three hours, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know, maybe just because I'm getting older, I just don't have the patience. I don't know, Chris. I You know, it's interesting that you say that. Um... I want to love baseball. I coach baseball. I want to love watching it on television. I don't. There was one, and you wrote about this in an article a couple of weeks ago, there was one game that I am so glad I didn't miss the fourth inning of, and that was that Yankees opener uh, when they had that fourth inning that went, I believe, for 36 minutes, and it was an absolute assault by the Red Sox on all sensibilities New York. I mean, they absolutely assaulted them with their speed on the bases, with the gaffes in the field by the Yankees. It was a Red Sox fan's dream. I was thrilled to be at that game. I had, uh, it was one of the games I picked at the beginning of the year when we sat around the table at our season ticket meeting and, and chose the game. I think that was the first one I picked. But man, oh man, that game just had a little bit of everything. And, and most of my columns are just opinions and, and retrospectives. But this one, I just decided to, as if you were there. And how many strange things that had happened in that game that I've never seen before in the hundreds of games that I went to. They uh, they normally do the two-hour review of the yeah. game on Nesson. And then on the uh, they'll do a highlight reel on the uh, on the Red Sox website. They put up just the fourth inning, just that that mm. half of the fourth inning, um, because it was that remarkable. And you're right, everything everything happened from Yankees errors to miscues to Bradley making this miraculous slide at home to stolen bases to timely hitting and and around around they went in the order. It was a one of the most entertaining games I've seen. Uh, in my life, yeah. frankly, uh, but certainly this season and and for the last few years. But back to the pace of the game, Chris. What in your mind, if anything, makes sense for baseball to do about this? Because you're not going to find a lot of Chris Derrick, my sons, who uh, does watch baseball religiously. You're not going to find a lot of them, 17, no. 18, 19-year-olds. And I don't think it's an age thing. I think it's an attention. It's just not feasible to sit down for four and a half hours and watch a game. And, you know, like I said, hockey, you know, is going to be two and a half hours and basketball is about the same. And But there's something about baseball, especially recently, it used to be appointment viewing for me, even before they won in 04. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it was just something that I, I would even DVR and watch it later, that kind of thing. But I would try. I would never miss a whole game. But these days, you don't want to change the game so much that it's almost unrecognizable. Right. Uh, to affect uh, and to draw in new viewers. I don't think you'll ever really be able to get the young crowd. I mean, I where I grew up, I used to go out every day on my bike and go play baseball. And, and you'd have to struggle sometimes to find an empty field. And you've probably seen, you can drive by the fields. We're right Franklin, across the street from yeah, them, right? Exactly. Now, three of them. And they're empty all year round. I take my dog there, and there's hardly anyone playing there unless there's a league yep. uh, uh practice or that kind right, of thing. But right. otherwise, kids don't just get together on the sandlot and play anymore. No. 
Um, I mean, part of it's video games, but part of it is they they just haven't either been brought up or they were exposed to it, and it didn't it just really didn't take. Now I know Major League Baseball experiments with this pitch clock, which is up there and it's been up there for a couple of years now, and they mm. don't they don't enforce it. No. Um, I I even heard a talk of going to seven innings. Which to me is is so fundamentally changing the game, changing the roles of all types of players, everything from the designated hitter to, you know, the, uh, what you do with the relieving core to closing and all that stuff. It really changes it up. But, um, but something like that would be so drastic to the nature of the game; mm-hmm. it would change all the records that I, exist. I, I was just gonna say, Cooperstown would have to be reinvented. Right. Uh, you'd have to close the current one, preserve it, and and have another Hall of Fame. And would you still have 162 games? I don't know. I mean, part of it is, I think, with the younger generation that the World Series games don't start till 8.30 at night, 8.15, 8.30, sometimes later. And then you, a lot of grade school kids in October and November, they can't stay up uh, till the end of these games. You remember in 04 how some of those Yankee games and even the World Series games went 11, 12, it, it, 1 o'clock in the morning. Insane. And you're trying to, mar- I mean, they, were, they put in so much money into learning how to market to people. Everything's marketing. Everything's branded. You mean to tell me you can't figure out that in order to tra- attract more young viewers and a younger population that's going to sustain you for years that you can't bump those games up in time? It's crazy. Well, a lot of it is is for money, and you have the West Coast viewers yeah, exactly. who are affected yeah. by that as well. I want to remind everybody, we're speaking with sports journalist Chris Young. Chris Young is uh, a longtime sports fan and has lived uh, certainly my dream in terms of being able to cover all of the New England sports, including interviewing many, many Boston sports celebrities and uh, legends in his lifetime. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find me at my podcast, www.chaptersradio.com. And Chris, I'd like to talk a little bit about today's Red Sox. You have had some really neat uh, uh, observations on this year's team, which is uh, I'm having to pinch myself right now. 85 and 35 today, as we as we broadcast, with how many games left? 40 or so. 42 yeah. games. Left. 40 42 games left. Um, without a doubt, in my mind, Chris, the most exciting team that I recall watching, from the standpoint of I like the way Cora plays uh, the run. I like the way he runs. Um, he's got the speed to do it. He's got acrobatic outfielders, and he's got a lot of power. W- what do you think? terms of this this Red Sox team's spot, and we won't know how it's written relative to the postseason, but relative to its spot in terms of exciting teams to watch. I think they're tremendously exciting. I think they're the one one of the most exciting teams ever put together. And I'm, I'm going back a ways, too, uh, because they're, they're really, really deep, especially uh, at every position, and they haven't suffered too many injuries this season. But uh, especially when you have two MVP candidates, which is very unusual. I mean, you look at this team, and other than the addition of J.D. Martinez, it's almost the exact same team that played last year. Now, that team was the defending AL East champion, and uh, they got to the playoffs. Um, One could argue whether they were built for for October because they didn't really uh, consider, uh, you know— they really didn't have the luxury of, of resting a Chris Sale mm-hmm. on a regular basis so that he would be fresher. And as you recall, uh, David Price missed a lot of last season yes, because of yeah. injury. Yep. Um, but they were constantly in a battle just to, to make the playoffs. So I think every game was very important. This season, I think, with a 10-game lead and 
at this point, I think they can really gear themselves, uh, even if it means not really setting any records as far as uh, victories in a season, that kind of thing. I think they would dispense with that as long as they can uh, guarantee that they'll be fresher once the playoffs start. But it's still not a... It's not a cakewalk to the World Series. There are some good teams in that East. We sure are. In that, in the, uh, yeah, in the American League that they'll have to deal with. In fact, I would argue that three, three out of the best teams in all of baseball are sitting in the East, maybe four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's going to be very inter- interesting to watch. But I, what, What's your report card in Alex Cora so far? I know it's, to beg the obvious, 85 and 35, what can he be doing wrong? But what, what type of an impact do you think he's had? Because Dombrowski certainly made his mark with all these moves. I think it was a great hire. I, I think him coming from the culture of Houston where he, he was part of a World Series team last year and he had played the game. I know John Farrell had played the game, but I think as a, as a pitcher it's different. I also think that personality-wise, John Farrell was very different, and uh, tactically, he, he was a different kind of manager. I also like the idea that that uh, Cora speaks Spanish, and so he can relate to a lot of the, some of the players, especially a Rafael Devers, that kind of— Sure, and he's also 41, yeah, which is a little closer right. than 60. And he played with these guys, guys. some yep. of these guys right. before— so he's very res- well respected. I don't think he's the taskmaster that Farrell was. I think his door is always open, and I just think he relates to the players much better than Farrell did. And that's not to take anything away from Farrell, but I think at some point they had they had tuned him out, and they were not going to really improve with him at the helm. Right. I I didn't feel. I agree, and and you know I was looking at Gabe Kapler the other day, uh, one of my favorite uh, Red Sox you know guys that was a uh just a workhorse and still is the guy's a bodybuilder he's in great shape but uh, i was looking at him and his youthful appearance walking out of the phillies dugout when they were when they were visiting here and uh thinking that he must be a lot more relatable than some of these some of these uh older guys you know um well you look at some of these uh more popular managers these days you got kapler this is his first year uh he had never managed at the major league level he the highest he ever man- managed was at single A. Single A, exactly. Then you have Dave Roberts in, yeah. in L.A. He took that team to the World Series last year. Great example. Aaron Boone over there, he's never managed before. He played at the same time that Cora and, and Gabe Kapler and Roberts did. So uh, some of these younger guys are certainly much more relatable. And there's probably a lot more, too, mm-hmm. uh, managers I can't remember the names of. But I think the... Uh, the Bobby Coxes and those kind of guys, the Larusas, those guys are days. Their days are past because they, the young players really can't identify with them or their strategies. Uh, the game has changed, I think, for these younger players, and, yeah. and they want to be able to uh, work with someone I think who is of their generation yeah, and also yeah. shares uh, their uh, their feelings for the game at this point in time. Absolutely. Chris, uh, I thought a brilliant move was, was picking up Ian Kinsler. What, what do you think about that move? It's kind of sad with, with uh, Dustin Pedroia's demise uh, from the game due to injury. Uh, but Ian Kinsler, that, that was something I didn't expect. Did you? No, I didn't. I didn't think the uh, Red Sox would be active at the trade deadline at all. They were right up against, once they acquired Steve Pierce in late June, mm. they were right up against that highest luxury cap threshold and I just felt like, I just felt like John Henry and the ownership group really didn't want to go beyond that level. And they thought, I believe they had a good enough team. You know, they were flourishing and, and didn't really need to do all that much. But they, 
but that second base position definitely was a black hole of sorts. They really weren't getting much production out of that. You had Holt playing over there sometimes, Nunez, and uh, but bringing in Kinsler, I I thought was it was a real surprise because it was right at the right at the end, uh, a Gold Glove type player, uh, well respected in the game, power, speed. Yep. It's too bad he got hurt, uh, I think, in that same Yankee series. Was, just wasn't discussed. he a 30-30 guy uh, not too, in the not-too-distant past, maybe two or three years ago? I think you're correct in that. I and mean, he's, he's, he's at the end of his career, no question. Yeah. And hamstrings are tough. You don't know when he's coming back. Right, but, right. But if, if they can get him back healthy for September and October, it's going to provide a real lift. I, yeah. I th- thought it was a great signing as well. And not for that much money, and it's just a rental, I expect. Yeah. Yeah. But Dave Dabrowski's really done a good job. And I understand he's a very nice guy. Have you had a chance to meet him? I never have, no. You haven't? Yeah. No. He seems uh he seems like he's got a real good knowledge of game. He's been he's been in it for quite a while. But I think um I think as far as the franchise goes, you know, I hope I, I look at the ticket prices, Chris, and I look at the I look at the park and the way they built it out and I it's it seems like there's always this this attitude around Boston sports in general of what's next. You know, we don't rest on our laurels. We don't sit here and say, well, we're happy with that, you know, and just and that includes the, f- the facility itself, uh, the expectations of the fans in terms of the facilities and the product on the field, because we push that envelope so high with ticket prices and with the Boston sports legends, if you will, uh, of over the years. Um, what do you what do you see as the future of this franchise? You wrote a really neat article that is uh I really liked, and this appeared earlier this summer, called What Will the Red Sox Look Like in the Next Few Years? And this is in the Sun Chronicle from uh, June 29th of 18. Really, I hadn't seen anything written like this uh, over the summer where it talked about what this team is going to look like potentially next year with all of the uncertainty contract-wise and player personnel-wise. What do you think the future of the franchise in general is? Well, I think it's interesting because I think this is... uh we talked about Dombrowski, and I, I look back at what he did in Detroit, and I think he, too, was in a situation back in 2013 when he had a really loaded team, mm-hmm. including Verlander and Scherzer. And, uh, but he kind of let the, the bullpen kind of take care of itself, and he didn't really improve upon that. And that's what uh, really doomed the Tigers in 2013. 2013 when they played the Red Sox Mm -hmm. in the ALCS. Uh, uh, The the Red Sox really exposed that bullpen, and I think that's why they ultimately won and won the World Series. And I think some people see parallels this year with how Dombrowski has built this team, but at the trade deadline, he didn't really address the bullpen, and that could be their downfall. I, I still think that there are improvements that maybe can be made, maybe with September call-ups, although the, the Paw Sox team isn't all that great, so I don't know who really can yeah, help and, them down there. And as you go through in this article, um, there is so much uncertainty that I think a lot of casual sports fans like myself have, have completely overlooked. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I don't have it in front of me, but as I recall, they have some real decisions to make because, uh, for instance, Chris Sale is only signed for one more year. Right. Um David Price could opt out after this season. Right. Take a major haircut cut probably in terms of pay, right. but, but he's awfully unhappy. He is unhappy, and he's made a ton of money over his career. He's been around for at least 10, 12 years now, and so he's he's made a fortune. So, you know, happiness isn't something you can buy. Right. He's making $30 million a year, but if he's just had enough 
about the, the media frenzy here. Maybe he just takes half that somewhere else. Here's one that you exposed that shocked me. J.D. Martinez has this complicated contract, which allows him to opt out uh, after two or three years. After next year or after the third year. And even a fourth option, yes. fourth year option. Um, he has talked about wanting to stay and talking about redoing his contract. Uh, but he's making 22 now, and they don't have a lot of wiggle room. Uh, you know, they still have Pablo Sandoval in the books next year. And Gosh, they, I can't believe that. <laughs> Talk about Ajita. And they still have Rusni Castillo down down in AAA, and they can't even bring that guy up because they can't afford him on the major league roster. Um, but then you got you got uh, Bogarts, who I believe he's up after next year. Pomerantz, who he's yeah. a free agent after this year. Yeah. You look at their whole starting rotation. Craig Kimball, Joe Kelly. Yeah. Uh, Nunez, uh, who I believe you already mentioned, yeah. and um, and they're still dealing with uh, Hanley Ramirez in a way. Yeah. You know? I mean, they're still paying him this year, and uh, he'll be off the books finally next year. So that's $22 million they don't have to pay. Mookie bets. Mookie signed for, I believe, two more years. Right. But then he can go anywhere, and it's very telling that he's he's had discussions with the club, but he's waiting to see how the Bryce Harpers of the world are going to be paid when he becomes a free agent after this year. And Bogarts, he's a free agent um, after next year. So you look at that whole roster, and there's only a handful like Devers and Benintendi and maybe Vasquez, who are you know will be on the team in Swihart, maybe Blake Swihart. No, I don't think so. I think he's listed in your in your probably gone. Um, yeah. So so as far as a nucleus goes, that's not much to build on. No, and it's obvious Dombrowski is playing for the here and now. Yeah. Especially for these next couple of years, yeah. especially. You know, if Kimbrell leaves, who's going to take his place? That's why it would have been nice to get a Zach Britton. Instead, they the Yankees stole him, and the Yankees now have three closers, while we conceivably, the Red Sox, will have no bona fide closers next year. So, Chris, if you ex- kind of take that and fast forward and say all the worst case happens and we wind up with a small nucleus of guys that are still here and, and the team takes a bit of a hit, could you foresee from a franchise level us going back to attendance levels that were back when you and I were going up with uh, ten or 12,000 people in the stands? I don't think so, Jim, because I think the team is always willing to spend the money. And right now, people forget they're the highest payrolled team in the Major League in Major League Baseball, and they've never been that before. It's always been the Yankees or the Dodgers. This is the first year, and they're number one by a lot. And they seem comfortable with that, um, even if it means, as they are this year, paying some luxury tax money in the offseason. Uh, I don't think they're going to get a Bryce Harper or a Mike Trout in the coming years, but they're always going to keep rebuilding, I think, and that'll be interesting to watch. But I'm still amazed, even this season. I know they're an exciting team, but even on matinees and even on cold, rainy nights in, in May, they're still filling out that place. Isn't so. that an amazing thing, Chris? And as, as you know, my dad is the oldest employee for the Boston Red mm-hmm. Sox right now at 85 years young. Um, he handles their email and uh, various fan outreach activities. But um, he's always amazed because he does get the email and he does get requests from people for things that they call fan packs, which mm-hmm. are actually a Boston creation. And a lot of teams have, have uh, adopted them, which are packages of promotional inform- uh, promotional stuff, nice little wristbands, autograph pictures that they send out to people that request them. He gets requests from literally everywhere in the world. He has, this is it's a it's a lifestyle. 
being a Red Sox fan uh, for many, and that's why they call it Red Sox Nation. Mm. Um, I guess the Cubs uh, franchise has, has uh, come close to equalizing that, if not equalized it. The Yankees certainly, but there aren't that many franchises that have this loyal of a following. It's a real brand, and, I, and the, the Cubs were similar, obviously, to the Red Sox as lovable losers until a couple of years ago, and I think that changes the franchise forever. Once you finally break a curse or you finally win after so many years of suffering, um, but I think Wrigley Field and and Fenway Park are just two jewels. They they used to talk about replacing Fenway Park. I remember those, those yeah. discussions are no longer even on on the books anymore. Well, Larry Lucchino, he's been brilliant with this franchise and and bringing in that architect and her name escapes me. Janet Marie Smith. Thank you. Uh, she did a wonderful job, in my opinion, of renovating that park, adding the seating that they needed strategically, and making it a real fan friendly experience. Now. She couldn't do anything about obstructive views. She couldn't do anything about seats in right field facing in the wrong direction, so on and so forth. But uh, there are a lot of areas, uh, I think, of the concourse underneath the bleachers right now in right field out there. They're just wonderful areas uh, for families to congregate. And pricing aside, they've done a, one, a really good job of preserving Fenway Park. They have. Through all of they those have. renovations. I mean, they've, they've improved the, the menu items. I mean, I sometimes am critical of them because it looks like a NASCAR car sometimes. <laughs> but the fact is, they have stayed true to the uh, to the uh, history of the park. And I know a lot of people, when they put in the monster seats, were up in arms. But uh, I have no objection. And some of those seats that are in the pavilion up up above the the infield, those offers such a beautiful view Thank of the you park. for saying that. Spectacular views. They I do. got to sit by accident above on, in the State Street Pavilion, I believe, mm-hmm. the very top yeah. of the, uh, right behind third base. It's amazing. Chris, it was one of those beautiful evenings with barely a breath of air, cool enough, and uh, frankly, it's a stunning view. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? It's a good place to watch a ball game from. It sure is. You know, you've got a great bird's eye view, and, I, and standing room on the Monster, another great spot. To look at. Hey, Chris, with a couple minutes we have left, I have a question for you, and I'm really going to blindside you with this one. <laughs> what, in your estimation, can you pick out the top two or three sporting events in Boston that would stand out to you if you had a an hourglass in front of you and someone said, go, and it comes right to your mind? Well, I would have to say, uh, I would have to say the first one that comes to mind is the first Patriots Super Bowl victory in uh, February of 2002 against the Rams. They came as, in as 14-point underdogs, and I, they had a magical season, especially once Tom Brady took over, but I don't think anyone really gave them a chance. And what a game that was. They jumped out to the lead. They, they let the Rams catch up. They, it almost looked like it was going to go into overtime, and then that final drive uh, culminating with Vinatieri's uh, uh, last-second kick, uh, one of the tr- tremendous sports moments that I can remember. You know, I I, I certainly remember 04 and waking my kids up, and I always wonder what would have happened. I had Game 7 World Series tickets to that World Series, and I always wonder what would have happened if there had been a Game 7. Yeah. I, I, I've always believed that if I wanted to sell them, I could be putting my daughters through college <laughs> on that. But it also would have meant... That the Red Sox would have blown a three to nothing lead in the World Series. This would have been game seven, and everybody would have been talking about, yeah, this is going to be the greatest choke job in the yeah. history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kid. The other one I would say, and, and I wish it had taken place in Boston, but it didn't. But I, I just remember uh, 
because of my affiliation with the Bruins and having worked with them for so many years, I almost felt like I knew all the people in the organization as much as I did the BAA. So when that Bruins team in 2011 made its cup run, and, and once the playoffs started, I don't think anyone really gave them a chance. And the year before, they had blown a 3 nothing lead against the Flyers, and so their hopes weren't. But we hadn't had a really good cup run since the early 90s, so it was really exciting to see. And then uh, they they play the bad the big bad uh, Vancouver Canucks yeah. and then uh, they fall behind two to nothing tie it up two to two fall behind three to two tie it three to three go out west and play a decisive game seven out there and and to watch that game and it was kind of anticlimactic I think it was a four to nothing Bruins win but just uh, finally being able to see my team win the Stanley Cup. Uh, was a, a great thrill for me, and I like to be objective, but sometimes you can't. But I, because of my uh, my connections with the Bruins, I was able to go to a season tickets event, ticket holders event, and and uh, pose with the the cup and oh, that's wrap great. My, arms around it so that's fantastic and you know what chris we talked a lot about baseball today because we're in the summer we're in the summer season the season of, mm. of of baseball but i have to tell you that i can see your excitement when you're talking about playoff hockey um and i know you've been to plenty of playoff games mm. uh is there anything more exciting than no. playoff hockey no i don't think so especially live yes absolutely and i haven't been to a ton but uh, i went to one memorable one in 1990 i went to the Stanley Cup Finals Game 1 against Edmonton, and uh, I had a press pass. It was the only time I've had a press pass, and this was a Cup Finals game in Boston at the Old Garden, and uh, it ended up being the longest game in Stanley Cup Finals history. It went three overtimes, and they ultimately lost, but it also had... Uh, the lights went out, and they had fog, <laughs> I, I and yeah. it almost went to a fourth overtime. There yeah. only about three minutes left in the third. Yep. Um, but uh, we got in there at 7 o'clock, and I didn't leave the, the garden till about 1.30 uh, in the morning. But, the, you know, the, the TD Garden is fine, but there's I don't think anything will ever replace basketball or hockey in the old garden. No, it won't. And, uh, and even when I'm watching playoff hockey on TV, it's just mesmerizing because, you know, if it goes to overtime, you could be there all night, man, mm-hmm. and you don't you don't know who's going to win. And there's so much on the line, especially when it takes 16 games to to win the thing. And there's hockey almost every night, every other night during that that time. Mm-hmm. Hey, Chris, you know we've had uh, a lot of tragic things happen uh and and life has really changed since 9 11 uh since that awful day uh the marathon bombing uh we have a strange political discourse going on right now which is mind-boggling to me i'm curious as to your observation as a journalist on the impact and the importance of sports in our culture and our society well that's a that's a loaded question and you, too often lately we've seen sports get infiltrated by by politics when it really should have no place in it. But on the other hand, when you look at all the controversies in the Scott in the college uh, sports landscape, sometimes you can't help but uh, understand that people aren't always going to act in the right ways. And sports has become so big now, even at 
even at uh, the lower levels. I mean, you look at the World Little League World Series that's unfolding this week, I believe. It's incredible. And so many of these teams will do, are from around the world, will do anything. These are 12-year-old 12 12 year kids, but the adults will be adults behaving badly, and they will uh, cheat or manipulate the system to, to put together an all-star team that perhaps could win and and in some ways spoil it for for the kids involved mm-hmm. kids who are really not even fully formed individuals mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and all of a sudden ESPN's broadcasting all these games even the regional games and these kids are getting exposed to national TV and then all of a sudden the next year they're just going back to school and they're just regular kids again um, i don't think that answers your question but i think sports at at all levels has been affected in good ways and bad ways. I don't, I think that sports in general is one of the best things that, that has been a part of my life, and I will always uh, cherish my sports memories and the doors that have opened because of my love for the games. Um, but I also know that uh, there are some some things that you just can never go back, and I, I you know, it never used to be an issue where the national anthem people were really paying attention to that. Right now, every football game, it's become a, you know, the networks are broadcasting it, and yeah. and and decisions and judgments are made and criticisms, and and you have the president tweeting, and he really shouldn't be involved in the, in that at all, and and yet, right, he can't right. help himself. But you know, as we talk, Chris, um, over the years, um, a lot of these sporting events, I, I saw you you tied one earlier to your daughter. Um, and, and talking about sports. And I know I think about uh, that Super Bowl victory, uh, propping Chris Derrick, my son, up in front of the TV, his first ever Patriots Super Bowl, his first year of life, um, was really, really something. So you mark, you kind of mark time by these sporting events, and it gives us, you and I and other people that, that love sports, an opportunity to have conversations and to get to know each other better, mm-hmm. using sports as kind of a barometer for our lives. Do you remember when? Did you ever go here? And you have a wonderful story about no-hitters that you shared with me. I'd love you to share it now because this is one of those things I, I've, I've actually caught myself telling people, I know this guy, a friend of mine, had the following experience. Well, to your listeners who've stuck it out and uh, recall my millionaire story, which which had an unbelievable ending to, to that. You know, I, I love baseball. My, my father introduced it to me in a uh, watching the NBC game of the week growing up. And in upstate New York, I was at least four hours from the nearest ballpark. So I rarely, I loved the Mets from afar. But I finally got to go to my first game when I was 10. And it was a mid-September game in 1969. And uh, uh, the seats weren't all that great. But as you know, walking into your first major league ballpark, even if it's tiny Fenway Park, but for awesome. me it was Shea Stadium, and there's nothing like that experience, especially for a 10-year-old kid who has only seen it on TV. So uh, you're seeing your heroes in, in person, and as the game played out, I, I just I was totally into it, but I realized, you know, there's not much happening here, and sure, surely no one could have expected that... Uh, the 1969 Mets, who a month later would win the World Series, would get no hit at home in my first major league game. First game ever. That's that's exactly what happened. And yeah. at the time, I was disappointed my team lost, but I don't think I knew the enormity or the unlikelihood of going to your first major league game and seeing a no-hitter. It's just most people don't see one in their lives, and my, it was my first one. Sure. 
And then I'd go, I maybe went to three other games. I went to one in Montreal, a couple in Yankee Stadium. But then on July 4th, 1983, I went again, hopped in the car as a 24-year-old and uh, went down to see the Red Sox play in person against the Yankees on Independence Day. At Yankee Stadium. Yep. And the Red Sox had dominated the first two games of the series, I believe, just run them out of the park. And Dave Rigetti at that time was still a starter. And same thing happening. This team, <laughs> I said, no, this this... No, this team is not going to get no hit, but they did. <laughs> in my fifth major league game, I saw another no-hitter, and two in five, and both against my teams, and I decided to do some homework on it. And Yankee Stadium, between, uh, in 19, I believe it was 1956, 1956, Don Larson threw a no-hitter against the Dodgers in the World Series. Between then in 1993, there was only one no-hitter thrown at Yankee Stadium, and I was at it. One in 30, 37 years. Two incredible facts. Well, then I looked at Shea Stadium, and between 1964, when the Shea Stadium opened, future Senator Jim Bunning threw a perfect game against the Mets the year the Shea Stadium opened. Until Shea Stadium closed, there was only one no-hitter thrown at Shea Stadium in the entire history of that part, and I was at that one. So I broke it down this way. In New York City, between 1964 and 1993, at the two major league parks, there were two no-hitters thrown, and I was at you both were of at them. both of them. That's like winning the lottery. And I didn't even live in New York City. Exactly. <laughs> I lived four hours away, and I drove four hours to get... I don't think there's anyone who can say that, that it, they were at the only two no-hitters thrown in New York during that uh, almost 30-year period. And it's a remarkable story. And um, I wonder, I wonder how many other people are out alive today that could say the same thing about those two games. Statistically, it's, I guess it's the same town. Uh, there's, there's a probability that somebody took in both of those games. Yeah, but Yankee fans aren't Mets fans and vice versa. And, I mean, and the beat writers for one team aren't the, covering and, the and other And for people team. that aren't familiar with baseball, seeing a no-hitter in your lifetime Live is a very, very, very small chance of you ever seeing one of those. So for this statistic to come alive, and that's, that's I guess, my point about sports and, and life. It's beyond entertainment. It becomes kind of, for me, these these types of stories are almost like folklore. Mm. You know, I know a guy who did this. I know another guy that did that. There's all kinds of uh, romantic stories uh, uh, that old guys like us get to wax poetic um, about. Chris, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming down to the studio today. No, Jim, I really enjoyed sitting down with you and sharing all these stories from my past. I, as I, I really thought that I was going to be doomed to a life of covering minor league <laughs> baseball and in hockey, Utica, New York, <laughs> uh, for the rest of my life and yeah. and and growing up in the town that I formed my roots. But uh, I took a chance, not only as a person, but as a as a journalist, and moved to one of what. Well, the time was a very exciting sports city, but little did I know that uh, during my time here, I've been able to witness and be on the periphery of uh, 10 world championships more than any other city even close during these last 16 years. And meanwhile, we sit here and the Patriots are a favorite and the Red Sox are obviously headed for the playoffs. The Bruins Celtics are obviously on the upswing. So I can't wait for 
all that this year has to offer and, right. and maybe more championships down the road. But we've been plenty spoiled, but it's it's unlike anything I've been a part of. And I, I'm certainly glad I moved to Boston in well, 1984. I'm glad to be able to call you friend. I really enjoy like our, our chats. In order to reach Chris, you can find him on Facebook. It's Christopher Young, Y-O-U-N-G. He'd uh, love to have you as a friend. Uh, the Sun Chronicle is uh, here in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Chris's column appears weekly, every Saturday in the Sun Chronicle. And uh, there's a link on Chris's Facebook page, back to those columns. And make sure you take a look at the Marathon publication and Chris's fine work on that. You'll be doing that again this year. God willing. God willing. So for Chris Young, my name is Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters, and we'll see you next week.